Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. The voice you hear is not that of Charlie Sykes, who is taking a much-deserved vacation now that he's fully vaccinated. Uh, but I am Mona Charon, policy editor at the Bulwark and host of another Bulwark podcast, Beg to Differ. And Bill Crystal and I are filling in today for Charlie or attempting to. Bill Crystal, of course, is the um, editor at large of the Bulwark, uh, major domo uh, guru. Uh, Bill, welcome. Nice to talk with you again. Thanks, Mona. Good to be with you. And we're filling big shoes here. But Yes, uh, we are. On the other hand, if this, if this, and you, but you, you, you already do that excellent back to differ podcast once oh, a week, which everyone you, needs, to, everyone needs to listen to. Slightly <laughs> different, um, more of a deep dive maybe than Charlie's news of the day, but an excellent compliment to it. So, um, anyway, I'm happy to be on with you. Thank you very much. Well, I um, today this today marks one week out since I've had the J and J vaccine, and of oh. course, last night we all learned, or yesterday afternoon we learned that uh, the. Uh, CDC and FDA recommend pausing vaccination with this particular vaccine because of the danger of blood clots. And uh, I just thought I'd mention that, you know, this is one of those situations where you really, your your emotional brain says one thing and your rational brain says the, another, right? So the emotional brain says, oh my God, I just got a vaccine. I wonder if I'm going to be one of those people who gets a brain uh, aneurysm. And the rational side of your brain looks up the the uh, odds and realizes that it's a million to one shot against having any sort of um, any sort of problem. Right? There have been something like seven million doses administered and six cases six cases of of blood clots. Um, and uh, and so you know you have I I, I tweeted this out. You have. Um, the chances that I will be struck by lightning are actually twice as high as the chances that I will get a blood clot. Um, all of which is to say, look, you you understand that people get panicky about you know risks that they're seeing a lot of attention paid to in the media, but um, but there's a world of difference between the actual risk and the perceived risk. No, that's so true, and I mean. Uh... You know, there are unfortunately people die of or get get sick because of blood clots and aneurysms all the time, regardless of the vaccine. Having said that, it they found some. I give them credit. I, I guess I, I was on line yesterday, and they were getting attacked from both all sides, the FDA and and uh, CDC for uh, uh, you know announcing that they were that what they had discovered. I mean, it's such a small number; it wasn't even discovered in the clinical trials, which you don't get to a million people in a clinical trial. So, right. if it's one in a million, you're not going to even see it, or it's going to be one case, literally, and you're going to not be able to show that it correlates at all. You know, mm -hmm. but um, but they they found something they thought, and they paused for let's see how long they paused for. So far, for what a day, day and a half, um, and I gather that places, at least around here, I've talked to a couple of people, have been able to fill in with Pfizer and. Uh, and Moderna, so it's not slowing things down too much. Um, it would, obviously, if they had to just pull J&J &J from the market. But I, I don't think they will. In fact, I rather think what they're planning to do is to go back, is to announce that people in certain age groups maybe should just be a little attentive and careful for the next you know, two weeks after getting the vaccine and so forth, which would be helpful. It would be helpful if they 
told people what to look for in terms of, you know, uh, signs that something wasn't, was awry and, and all. But I, I, as I say, they're being attacked from all sides. Is it going to increase vaccine hesitancy or they should be more, you know, more careful and just pull it all off the market? And I think they seem to be, to be doing kind of the right thing. I've got to say, you can't not report something you found. I don't right. think really it would not be proper for public agency. But I hope now that they'll be able to announce, I think they're meeting today, you know, tomorrow, today or tomorrow, that they're going to go back ahead. They could even, you know, but with some slightly special maybe protocols and so forth for again, making sure they tell people who they can call if something seems problematic or, or what to look for and so forth. So I don't know. I yeah. feel like this is a case study where, you know, the, these are always tricky balancing acts, as you said. But maybe they're handling this pretty well. Well, I guess we'll see. Yeah, it, it seems like it. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it takes a few more days because they're going to want to delve into the particular cases right. and you know what exactly happened, what kind of blood clots they were, and right. uh, the mechanism. I mean, uh, Anthony Fauci said something about the mechanism of action. They're going to want to look at that. Um, and uh, so it may, it may take a while. And, and they may get more reports in the interim of, of uh, other cases. So it maybe it'll take a, a, a up to a week or whatever but uh but yeah it's it seems like they're they're being rational and as i say it is i mean it's understandable that people get nervous when there's so much attention uh, focused on it but uh but in the grand scheme of things i mean covid is is uh highly uh uh you know is 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 uh is deadly in 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 a certain number of people itself so you know you have to balance risks life is risky a um, much higher number of people, obviously. Yeah, I mean, yes, a much higher number. I was talking with a friend yesterday who was, you know, said, "Oh, it's too bad because I have a they have a, a nanny and uh, and saying he he was saying that kind of she was hesitant had vaccine hesitancy, not not an anti vaxxer not a Trump problem or anything like that, just kind of wasn't certain. She's young, you know. Does she really need to do it? Um, mm-hmm. Doesn't come from a family where there's a lot of medical expertise and so forth. Mm-hmm. And um, but they, she was kind of getting there. And now this, uh, my friend was saying, this might set it back a, a little while. But as you say, if they do make a serious announcement in a week and it's back on the market, and plus they maybe redouble efforts to get the other vaccines available, um, yeah. hopefully it, it will really increase vaccine hesitancy. Which you know, if too much of that is a problem for obvious reasons, but yes. I feel yes. like all things considered, given where we were, maybe we should take a minute on this. I mean, uh, what are we, about 80 days into the Biden administration or something? And um, mm-hmm. I don't know, the, not just the amount of vaccine, but the somewhat depoliticization of it. I, I don't want to exaggerate that, but the people are getting it from all political persuasions, it seems like. And I know mm-hmm. plenty of people personally who are pr- happy they got the vaccine, who you know, unfortunately voted for Trump and stuff. So <laughs> right, uh, right. and even go along with some of the attacks on the lockdown and, so, and stuff like that. But I, I feel like that's been a, uh, they've done a pretty good job, the Biden administration and the whole, you know, and, and the network of organizations, which includes the private sector, of course, and and state and local governments and so forth and, and hospitals in, in getting this thing out there and getting people to take it and getting people to, you know, understand how to do it. Right. And, you know, whereas um, about six or nine months ago, a lot of us were wondering why uh, Europe seemed to be handling the situation so much better than we right. were. It's just the whole COVID thing, um, and uh, and and our response was 
terribly lacking. And now, I mean, at least on the vaccine rollout, we're way ahead of Europe, uh, which is which is interesting. So yeah, it's great for all the talk about vaccine passports and the demagoguing of that, which has been really shameful. I mean, that is the that's where the demagoguery has gone to, right? Mm-hmm. I actually, I'm struck. Uh, I was talking. Uh, well, I was talking to, but a lot of colleges, some colleges and universities, are saying they're going to basically required for people, students when they come back, as well as maybe faculty and others who work, you know, staff at, at these colleges and universities. They have special circumstances. They have dorms, you know, and you kind of like if you were a parent, I think, to know that everyone in your kid's dorm has been vaccinated. Even if your son or daughter has, you still would sort of be more comfortable probably if, if everyone or almost everyone has. And everyone I, who can safely do so. There are certain yes, categories of people. Yes, absolutely. Right, but I, right. And I kind of feel like we're going in that direction that all the you know, that we're going to, we're not going to literally have a vaccine passport the way Israel does perhaps on an app that everyone just shows quickly. Mm-hmm. And it is a lot more convenient though, if we're going to have test requ- requirements for of anything, if, if we're going to care whether people do or don't have COVID when they get on airplanes, go to theaters, do other things, the vac- being able to show that you've been vaccinated is a lot easier than bothering with another test, right? So absolutely, people are going to kind of realize that at some point also, and so I'm fairly, maybe I'm kidding myself, fairly optimistic that we get over some of the, uh, even the demagoguery on this. Well, Bill, you mentioned vaccine passports and the fact that it's a source of demagoguery. And so that leads us into another topic because one of the interesting thing that's, the things that we're seeing in the recent weeks is that the relationship between the parties and corporate giving uh, seems to be shifting, perhaps. Um, you had a statement that was signed by hundreds of companies, including BlackRock, Google, Warren Buffett, Amazon, many others, um, saying that uh, they oppose any discriminatory legislation that would make it harder for people to vote. Um, and uh, and at the same time, you have Republicans announcing that they are now the party of uh, the common man, that they are the workers' party, and that they are not so interested, perhaps, in corporate donations, or, or as Mitch McConnell put it before he reversed himself, um, you know, companies should shut up, <laughs> or he didn't quite use that language, but he said they they shouldn't weigh in on these matters. And a few days later, he reversed himself, but uh, and that's actually an irony right there, since. Who was most associated in American politics with the rights of corporate speakers in politics? It was it was Mitch McConnell, Citizens United, and so forth. Um, so anyway, for him to now be saying even temporarily that uh, that he thinks corporations should should butt out is kind of amusing. What do yeah, you make he, of this? He thinks they should butt out in terms of making their views known on voting rights and stuff. But of course, they should keep writing checks to the Republican senator yeah, exactly. and every every race he designates as a key one. Um, I don't. I've wondered for a while how much the kookiness, the genuine craziness on the Republican side, um, which begins with Trump but isn't limited to Trump, obviously, and how you know as it gets seems to not be receding from the party, but if anything, the opposite. How much that would eventually lead corporate America. Businesses in general, uh, businessmen and women, but I think especially kind of the more corporate side of business because they, uh, well, I'll get to why in a minute, um, uh, to sort of rethink their pretty instinctive and and, uh, and longstanding, you know, uh, association with the Republican Party. 
at some point, maybe you get a little bit lower tax rates from the Republicans. Maybe you get less aggressive regulation, more attentiveness to your interests. There's not much pro-union activity on the, on the Republican side. Um, but on the other hand, at some point, the craziness, if, the one thing kind of CEOs don't like is cra- if you're running a big company, you know, they kind of mm-hmm. like predictability. They don't like kookiness. They don't like incredibly divisive fights where they're then asked to pick one side against another uh, in a kind of bizarre culture war way. And even though you could say some of the times the Democrats have been dragging the, co- the corporations in, I think it's the Republicans who are generating these culture war issues. And so I think if you're running a big company, you've got a diverse workforce, you don't want to have to, you know, be always, uh, uh, you know, managing that situation, even it's always difficult, but, you know, making it even more difficult uh, when you have local Republicans setting some of your employees in effect against others, having, you know, trying to deprive some of your employees of the right to vote you know, while telling <laughs> the other employees that the last election was stolen. Uh, you know, you think, yeah, maybe the Democrats are a little easier to work with. And so I think in a very practical, non-ideological way almost, I, I've wondered how much corporate America could come over to a, at least uh, an openness to working with the Democrats. And then you've got the Biden administration, which is moderate as Democratic administrations go. And um, some of their legislation is okay with corporate America. They want to tweak it. But if you want to tweak it, guess what? You need to negotiate with the Biden administration or Senator Schumer or Speaker Pelosi. And then on something like voting rights, I do think a lot of the business men and women, you know, genuinely and earnestly just think that's a terrible thing what the Republicans are doing and they want to weigh in on that. So you put it all together. I wonder if we're at a bit of a moment, which could end up being significant, where sort of business, American business reconsiders it's a long time allegiance to the Republican Party and the, and the Democratic Party maybe in some ways realizes it's a big opportunity for it politically to to reach out, maybe to abandon a couple of their prize, you know, po- policy uh, priorities or not abandon, but, you know, tone down Modify. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in order to have the support of business. So if this actually plays out and, you know, one of the um, corresponding trends is that we see many more politicians on both sides um, seeking small dollar donations because with the rise of the internet and the ease of making contributions this way, um, politics has already begun to change. It's begin to it has begun to tilt more toward raising money directly from people through small dollar donations. Bernie uh, Sanders famously was able to raise huge amounts of money this way. Um, Donald Trump was able to raise huge amounts, uh, and uh, and but there's a there's a new term. So when you're trying to raise money from corporations. What do you have to do? Well, you have some nice dinners. Maybe you, you know, take them to the ballet. Maybe you, um, you know, are, are attentive, as you were saying, Bill, to their concerns about the regulatory agenda and so forth. When you're trying to raise money from small donors, on the other hand, you have to do these direct appeals and you have to get people angry. There is a term that has apparently entered the language called fundraising, <laughs> um, where you know these appeals are getting more and more hysterical. More and more, it's the end of the world if you don't donate. You know, we have to stop Biden's, you know, communist agenda or you know things of that nature. And so, you know, if there is a a turn by Republicans toward more 
focus on small dollar fundraising, doesn't that perhaps exacerbate the crazy that you were talking about a second ago? Yeah, no, that is a possibility. I mean, I do think there's an overlap. I mean, I think the way in which the Biden administration or Democrats should reach out to corporate America is not to be too corporatist about it. I mean, that is Amazon has leadership who can, they can, they have PACs that can write checks and see and individuals who, who've made a ton of money in Amazon over the last 10 years, 20 years, who could, uh, who can, uh, you know, write, write big checks to, to, to super PACs. They also have, I don't know, 800,000 or something American employees. And, you know, there are ways to convince them that the, it's in their interest for their company to do better, for them to do better, and indeed sometimes to pressure the comp- corporate leadership to be more generous in terms of health insurance or whatever. I think Amazon's pretty good on that, but whatever, you know, different mm-hmm. different aspects or or use OSHA to make sure there aren't too many work-related injuries. and But, you know, do it in a way that isn't simply bashing uh, Amazon, but sort of working with them to improve the circumstances for their employees. And you can imagine the same and for Coke and Delta and everyone else, you know, who's been in the news. So, I think there's a way in which you know, the Democrats can can get beyond the corporate leadership to remind people, including some of these same people who may get enraged and write small dollar small dollar contributions, uh, or maybe it's the relatives of those people. You know that they they work for these companies and or they work for companies that work with those companies, or you know, and um, they're a travel agency that books you know Coca Cola's tra- tra- travel or something. So mm-hmm. they have a sort of interest. I mean, this is very old fashioned, kind of old school interest group politics, American capitalism, two cheers for capitalism sort of stuff. But I mean, it sometimes incidentally could be a little bad for the country or a little too much can go too much in this kind of capitalist corporatist way you might say but a lot of people have an interest in american business doing well because most americans work for american businesses you know yep. so, i mean so i think just kind of a very simple almost you know kind of old school appeal by the democrats and some attempt to think through that in certain policy areas ways to harmonize the interests of the of the companies and their employees and their vendors and stuff um you might take the edge off that uh, rage uh, was it what did you call it fundraging fundraging you know, success yes. of that but but look there's you're right i mean one problem is yeah this could end up becoming more polarized but it, i don't know in that case the republicans are turning themselves into a party i think that appeals to you know 25 percent. i don't know the electorate and who are just outside of the mainstream and and furious and angry and disaffected. But I mean, these are massive companies and, and people work for them. And then there are small businesses that, that aren't as big, but that are in big trade associations that represent them. And if suddenly a lot of people who work in and around American business start thinking, you know, the Democrats are kind of paying attention to me, the way people in the academy now think that, the way people in the public sector now think that, the way a lot of you know professionals, uh, lawyers, and so forth think that, it could become, a, I think, a kind of a moment, uh, a beginning of a, of, a, of a important change in American politics. Yeah, very interesting. And of course, just um, it's w- one reminder um, that uh, donations are not everything. Um, I'm just looking at a list of. Um, Donations. This was as of September 30th, 2020. Um, but uh, it showed, for example, that in South Carolina, Harrison had raised, had outraised Graham uh, by about $15 million. Uh, Amy McGrath had outraised Mitch McConnell. Um, 
uh, Sarah Gideon had outraised uh, Susan Collins by almost three to one. Uh, Cunningham had outraised Tillis. I mean, you can go right down the list. Greenfield over Ernst. And all of those races went to the loser of the money race, but the winner of the race. Um, so um, it's important to remember that uh, while money is important in politics, it isn't everything um, that message matters. Yeah, and I think these big institutions, I mean, people can be unhappy with them. Maybe they don't like the Major League Baseball, the Major League Baseball move, the All-Star game for Atlanta. I think that was questionable. Uh, maybe they don't like a particular decision by the leadership of Coca-Cola or Delta or anyone else, Amazon. But at the end of the day, I mean, it's just hard for me to believe that Americans are so disaffected with the current political and economic system, one that has on the whole served them pretty well, that they just that 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 being against all these organizations and institutions is really a winning uh, proposition for a political party. It could be an winning in an individual race, maybe in a particular congressional district, maybe an individual uh, someone who's already elected can sort of turn this direction and and you know get himself reelected or self reelected, but. I don't know. It just feels like, what is the Republican base that it really then becomes total? I mean, right now it's a mixture. You've written about this and uh, Jonathan has very well, I think. It's a mixture of grievance, uh, politics, but also actual just economic interest of, of an awful or perceived interest of an awful lot of middle class, upper middle class Americans. If that second part starts to be whittled away and it just becomes grievances, I, I don't know that that's sustainable. Speaking of what the Republican Party is about and what it is, um, last weekend there was a meeting at Mar-a-Lago hmm. um, where, of course, you know, the Republican Party put more money into Donald Trump's pocket by uh, <laughs> attending the uh, the confab in the first place. Um, but more importantly, they, um, they reinforce that they are still completely in his thrall. Um, I, I think his comments about Mike Pence in his sort of Fidel Castro length speech uh, didn't get enough focus, didn't get enough attention because it strikes me that once again, you know, so we've had this sort of, um, we've had this reevaluation of what happened on January 6th. The people at Fox News are trying to say that it was uh, just, a, you know, it was just patriots, uh, you know, trying to get their voices heard, and uh, there was violence, and that was committed entirely by Antifa, and so on. Um, and, uh, you know, nothing to get upset about, as Tucker Carlson said the other night. Um, but when you look at what Trump himself said about Mike Pence, we are reminded what the stakes are here. What did he say? He said he's still upset about Mike Pence because he lacked the courage to do what was right. And what's he saying? He's saying that Mike Pence should have defied the law, that is the Constitution, by failing to certify and read out the results of the Electoral College, which in turn, I guess, in Trump's mind would have led to a cascade of other responses from other officials, and that perhaps the election could have been overturned. And that is the that's the 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 gravamen there of what of what he's saying is that that is what he wanted to see happen, and all of those little bobbleheads among Republicans are sitting there listening to Trump say that, and they're like, "Yep, yep, it's a shame about Mike Pence not having the strength to do what was necessary." Yeah, 
I mean, it's pretty astonishing, isn't it? I mean, Trump is not giving up at all, not yielding at all, not even acknowledging that what happened was unfortunate, really. He did that for like two days and then moved on from that. And all the donors sitting there clapping as he really makes fun in a kind of crude way of of uh, President Obama and Mrs. Obama and then the tax pens for literally not overturning the election. I mean, that is what's striking, I guess. It's not just, oh, there was some fraud, that's false, that's a lie, but whatever. It's a general lie, you might say. Here he's literally saying that Pence on January 6th, knowing what we all knew on January 6th, knowing that Georgia and Arizona, two Republican-run states, had certified the results after careful recounts and with uh, with, with Republican governors and and, and so forth, uh, knowing that everything everyone had looked closely again at Michigan and Wisconsin, he was saying that Pence should have overturned it. Then I mean, people need to internalize that. And this is the guy they're paying court to, whether it's Kevin yes. McCarthy or the donors uh, or others. And now again, for me, it's not just the it's not just the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Matt Gateses, right? It's the Marco Rubios and Kevin McCarthy's uh, and and other let's quote, mainstream Republicans who remain totally enthralled with, 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 with Trump. Nikki Haley said, was it just a couple of days ago, that of course she'd support Trump. She wants to run herself in 2024, but she'd support Trump if he ran. Now, what, really? You're going to support someone who tried to overturn the election, doesn't regret having tried to overturn the election, doesn't regret January 6th, regrets only that Mike Pence didn't overturn the election? It's really, I mean, it is, it's, it's not so much Trump himself, it's the, it's the uh, continued obeisance to Trump that's really uh, terrible. Which, right, which makes the Republican Party an anti-democratic force in American life. I'm sorry yeah. to say. Yeah. Um, no, but you um, you have some, some reports from the field, from uh, some GOP efforts, uh, some non-Trump people uh, running in Florida and Texas. Why don't you... Fill us in on that. Yeah, I don't. I don't have any really inside dope, but I followed these things a little bit. So in in Texas, to take the one that's coming up, there's a special election for the, in Texas six, the sixth congressional district, which is outside Dallas, um, Arlington, I think where the stadium is, and in, in north north of Dallas. Um, uh, that's the district that Ron Wright, the congressman, uh, died unfortunately of COVID, and so it's a special election. His widow is running. It's a one big field, 23 candidates. The two leaders go on to a runoff. And no, no it's not party elections the way they do the special elections there. So uh, lots of people running in both parties. Uh, all the Republicans, uh, with one exception, are to some degree Trumpy. I mean, uh, Ron Wright's widow is, is, I'd say, more of a normal establishment Republican, but she wants to carry out Trump's agenda and so forth. And then there are literally people who worked in the Trump administration and people who are boasting that they've you know, endorsed Trump in the past. Then there's this one fellow, Michael Wood, um, who I, I talked to on the phone once, I don't know him at all well, but he's a Marine, former Marine. Uh, and he got in uh, as and explicitly, I mean, I remember he, he some of his advisors were saying, well, don't, don't emphasize that you're not for Trump and 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 that you're the kind of want us to get beyond Trump. Just just keep quiet and talk about how you serve the country and honorably and you're from the district and have a nice family and all this. And he said, <laughs> no, no, I I'm I need to be, you know, explicit about this. So he's uh he's you know explains that he he's running partly because of January 6th and, and wants we need to move beyond Trump. He doesn't want Trump's endorsement. He wouldn't accept it, he said. That was pretty striking. And so uh, it'll be interesting to see how he does. I don't know that he'll have as much money as some of the other candidates. And 
he's never run before, so he had no name ID to start with. He's getting some decent national press and uh, and some press down there, I gather. I think the Dallas Morning News even endorsed him and said, you know, uh, he looks like, I'm not sure it was a final endorsement, but, you know, but a very favorable editorial about him and some of the, the voters in that district should look at. So that'll be interesting as a little bit of a snapshot into where the Republican electorate is and independence since it's a jungle primary, everyone can vote. There are some Democratic candidates and one of the, uh, you know, who are very respectable Democrats. So if you're a Democrat, you probably stick with the Democrats. Maybe a few would come over and vote for, for Wood. But it'll be interesting to see whether, you know, he gets 5% of the vote or 20% of the vote or 25 or even makes the final two, you know, just in the sense of what market is there for this kind of message in the Republican prim- among, among primary voters. I sent him a check, but uh, yeah, yeah, I, I'm not optimistic. <laughs> no, I mean, tech, you know, and every, uh, we've gone down this road several times. I mean, I <laughs> I didn't, and, you know, I, a lot of people, a fair number of people called me in 2018 and 2020, you know, should I think of running? I've been a Republican, and I would often, I mean, people should make up their own minds, and I was very, you know, uh, happy to help them if they do, and you never know, and sometimes it's good to run, even if it's a real long shot, because you get a good experience and so forth, But and sometimes the long shots come in, but I mean, running with Trump either as president or at the top of the ticket just was, if you weren't a Trump support loyalist, was going to be very, very difficult. And you're going to have to straddle or you weren't going to straddle and just get beat up by the Trump people. Maybe it's a little different with him out of office, but you know, not that it has been very different in terms of the overall, as we were just saying, overall yeah, so spirit far. of the Republican Party. And then in Florida, Matt Gates's district, a uh, an Air Force veteran, uh, it was reported today, and I, I, this is true, I, I think, is planning to run. Uh, he's, again, from the, these are both people who are from the district, have real roots in the district with their families, uh, have come back to their dis- to the district. So that's obviously, unless Gates resigns, that's not until a re- Republican primary a year from now. So um, a little more from a year, than a year from now. So that's that's a different kind of timetable. But uh, so some, you know, some things are happening that maybe offer some hope. It's interesting those people do want to run. They want to run as Republicans because they don't, they're not quite, moderate Democrats yet. I, I talked to them about that. And they mm-hmm. just feel more comfortable for now, at least in the Republican Party, and want to give it a chance. And I think Adam Kinzinger's, uh, you know, has supported Wood in Texas and um, Liz Cheney. I think there'll be a certain number of people who will try to step up for them. Be interesting mm-hmm. to see how much of these Republican establishment types, though, and, and this is the most worrisome and sort of depressing thing. This is their moment. I mean, they, they've all said, oh, we just went along with Trump as we had to. There was no choice. You know, we could beat him in the 2020 primaries. Mm-hmm. We preferred him to Biden because Biden would be so terrible for us. But, you know, deep down, of course, we want a sane Republican Party. Okay, well, here's a chance, right? Here's a chance <laughs> in Texas. Here's a chance in Florida. Uh, how many of these Republican donors, Republican big shots, former Republican the elected officials are going to say, yes, this is important. And, and these are just two congressional districts. There are many, many other places where one can imagine this, this will happen over the next year. The more they step up now, the more likely it is for it to happen. Because, of course, because people will, will say, yeah, I can run and I can get the support of a bunch of people and they'll do fundraisers for me and so forth. So I think, you know, it's, it's sort of time to put up or shut up for all these establishment types who claim to be very reluctant and very, you know, uh, torn about their need to support Trump. Well, now they have a chance to support non-Trumpy conservative Republican candidates. Let's see if they step up. <sighs> My worry is that um, the um, information, you know, silo that they're all in being what it is, and so many of the people who vote in Republican primaries getting their information from Fox or Fox-adjacent 
sources. Um, they just live in a different world, in a different reality. And uh, I don't know, we'll, uh, until we can get a handle on that, I'm not sure we can have political progress, but maybe, maybe. Um, do you want to say a word? I wrote today about uh, about police violence. I'm getting a lot of pushback. People are very angry at me. They think that they think I was justifying bad police conduct, which I did not really do. But um, but these two cases that came up are are very difficult. And I I was just trying to make some distinctions, like the the case this awful case in Minneapolis, where you know an officer. It seems to me. I believe her that it was it was a mistake that she shot him instead of using her taser. Um, obviously, it's a horrible tragedy, but I just was saying it's not it's not like Derek Chauvin, who you know was really, in my opinion, depraved in the way he squeezed the life out of uh, George Floyd. Um, this strikes me as a little different, um, but I'm you know I said it, and now people are mad at me. Uh, but we don't have to. We don't have to spend time on that. Let Let's talk a um, little bit, if you would, about um, about Afghanistan. Uh, the well, let me just say a word about. It. I ask you, oh, sure. the people who are mad. I mean, you you made very. You know, you were clear that you were not defending anyone's conduct. And I think that if in I don't know, Willie, I haven't looked at it nearly as, as close as you have. If there was, if if this was a case of reckless manslaughter or something like that, people should be prosecuted for that. I mean, there's no question right. that being a police man or woman doesn't exempt you from, you know, making, uh, from, from reasonable judgments and, and being held accountable for terrible mistakes, even if there's not the intention to, to kill someone, obviously. And that's different from Chauvin, it does seem like, but, um, I'm just stuck. I mean, what do you think the reaction is, is, you know, kind of left-wing activists who just don't want to even hear anything okay about the plea about uh, that we should understand yeah, I mean, I- even the, the difficult jobs police uh there's a there's a tendency you know again to just do these sort of you know manichaean black white um you know evaluations of things put it into a slot you know police bad you know um motorist good and there's no room for nuance look i mean one of the things that distressed me was that um you know i saw i saw a bit of the press conference with uh the city, uh, the mayor of Brooklyn uh, Center, Minnesota, who, you know, somebody asked, I guess, the police chief or 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 the city manager, some one of the, the press was demanding, you know, that this cop be fired. And uh, it had just, the thing had just happened. And he said, well, they said, don't you think she should be fired? He said, well, I think she deserves due process. And then we'll see. Uh, maybe, you know, but Due process has to go, and and people just were completely uninterested in that, and uh, and that struck me as somewhat similar to the attitude of many Republicans that we saw so often when we would say, "Look, you know, the rules matter, procedure matters, norms matter," um, and uh, and and people who supported Trump would say, "No, no, we're all about." just the outcome. The outcome is all we're interested in. And some of us pushed back and said, no, these things are incredibly important to a well-functioning polity. And, uh, and I, and I see a little bit now of that on the left, which is, you know, just fire her, you know, immediately, you know, verdict first, uh, uh, trial second, right. As the, as the mad queen says, I think in, uh, in Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, no, I think that's that's really an important point. And I also just politically, I would say I did this conversation with James Carville that people can watch or listen to if they want. I listened to it. It was yeah. great. 
Yeah, it's good, I think. And and he's very smart. And he it was struck, and he's seen a lot of polling, that defund the police, fairly or unfairly, I mean, hurt Democrats in 2020. Uh, some uh, member, Democratic member said, oh, this is too much. We have to just defund them all. We can't reform them. And I was struck that Jim Clyburn, the South Carolina uh, member of Congress, I think number three in the House, and the man who sort of saved Biden's uh, presidential campaign, it seems like, in South Carolina, uh, said, no, 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 we defund the police. That is crazy. We need police officers. We need to recruit. He was particularly interested in recruitment. We need to train them better and recruit better ones, and I assume discipline them appropriately and all that. Mm-hmm. And, and I do think that's very important politically for the Democrats. I mean, they need to be the party that wants to fund good police work, not the party that wants to defund the police. And funding good police work also means funding the kind of uh, soft power, you might say, side of the police, community engagement and all that, and, and really does mean that. I mean, that, and that was also incidentally a, a key to some of the successful policing in the 90s and in the in the 2000s that did reduce the crime rate. Some of it was locking people up, but a lot of it was actually had, let's call it a liberal side as well as a conservative side. If you look back at what uh, Bill Bratton and police commissioners like that did. So um, anyway, I think what Clyburn said was very interesting shows it very intelligent of him, but I am worried that, you know, you just get a few members of Congress and as you say, a few activists and screaming and yelling, and it just makes it so easy for, the Republicans irresponsibly to see the Democrats just hate all police officers. Exactly. And, uh, and by the way, you know, there are other reforms that I hope Democrats will consider if they are in the mood to reform the police. And that is, you know, pairing back the power of police unions, which which has been kind of scandalous in how they can let police get away with really with murder in some instances. So it's, um, so it's important to uh, to be aware of the possible reforms, short of defunding all the police departments, which is an absurd idea and uh, only hurts the Democrats, as you point out. Um, uh, just in fairness to my critics, I will say I also addressed the case of um, this army medic Nazario. Um, it struck me in a certain way. I felt like it was a weird. I, I watched the video. I felt like his reactions were odd. A lot of people were angry at me about that. They think he was completely reasonable. Individuals are going to differ about that. Certainly the police behaved badly. I thought he behaved oddly. That's all I was saying. Um, You know, sometimes when you don't cooperate with the police, it gets them hepped up. And it looks like that's what happened, that he kept not complying with their demands. And the, the situation tragically escalated. And, you know, I'm not saying that the police handled themselves perfectly either. But uh, I just I just thought that was a more complicated case as well. Um, all right. Um, finally, let's, um, let's say a word about, uh, I guess, the the unlamented passing of a bad person. <laughs> Bernie Madoff died. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. it was. I mean, so you and I, I think, given uh, new fair number, he, 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 of course, this, this whole Ponzi scheme was very much targeted towards the Jewish world, the New York world of of of, of, of wealthy investors, but also a lot of organizations, some of which were wealthy, some of which which just thought he was had a good reputation, and a lot of them were Jewish communal organizations and universities like Brandeis, as I recall, and, right. and so he he, um, and I think they Ellie Wiesel. Yeah, right, someone like Ellie Wiesel. Yeah. So, you know, he was a good, apparently a very skillful con man and had this Ponzi scheme going. I think one of the clever, I don't call it in detail, but one of the clever aspect of it, I remember someone, someone 
who knew Wall Street much better than I explaining at the time was his whole line was he had figured out how to kind of take a lot of the risk out of investing and get a very steady return with conservative investing. And as my friend said, it was a little ridiculous. I mean, once you get, if it's 9% every quarter or something like that, or 9% rate every quarter, I mean, you should be alert to that can't really be the case. No one has figured out, you know, how to do that. So it should be 5% one quarter and 13 the next. And, and the fact that it was so steady was itself a giveaway. But it was a funny thing. He didn't prey on the kind of simple-minded greed of people. I want to triple my money overnight. You know, it was a right. very sophisticated scheme. This is a pretty safe way to get a above market return. And this guy's very well respected and he's investing LEV sales money. So what could be wrong? And he really built it up into a giant uh, Ponzi scheme. And, uh, and it was terrible. I, I, I gather they've been working very hard to claw back all the money that you know others made from this and get it back to the original investors but that's just a massive effort at this point and um yeah i mean yeah, was, there there I mean, was a fantastic film made about this um i can't remember the name of it but the, i guess there are one or two movies about it just uh, but but it was um the one of the most horrifying aspects of this entire thing was that all of the institutional checks that should have caught it did not. And he was like, he was honored by, you know, the the New York Stock Exchange. I think he was even like on the board of the New York Stock Exchange or something. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, this just like it's it's mind-boggling that um that the con could have gotten to that level. Um really amazing. A lot of wealthy individuals and a lot of institutions that in each case you'd assume there's all these people who work for them and they'd be carefully looking at all this. And I mean, an awful lot of uh, times that's not always the case. People, you know, people are people and they're busy and they kind of, someone tells them this one's legit and they don't really carefully do much careful due diligence. You know, any of us who's on the board of a, a charitable institution or a think tank or anything, you know, you get sort of tired sometimes with all the due diligence and the audits mm -hmm. and the, uh, you yeah. know, uh, internal controls. But, you know, you see something like this and you really understand why that it sort of gets back to your earlier point about due process and sort of the, uh, uh, you know, some of the procedural hurdles you want to have in a free society, in a, in a, not just a free society, but in a society that depends on, you know, the smooth functioning of, of markets and, and to protect yes. people from fraud. I mean, it's not just, yes. you know, and, and yeah. you, you know, he that. was, um, Bernie Madoff in a way, you know, he was the beginning of an era of grifting, wasn't yeah. he? You know, yeah. I mean, since then we've seen so many huge frauds. I mean, maybe he inspired them. I don't know, but that Elizabeth, what's her name? Who, who did the, uh, the, the blood test thing, yeah. um, and of course, the the greatest of them all, Donald Trump got elected but, president. <laughs> but it is a good reminder that one can look down at a lot of these wealthy people do, I suppose, on the people who are checking the, you know, sending in $25, not realizing it's a recurring donation and really, you know, money they shouldn't be sending in, uh, right. can't afford to send in to the National Public and Congressional Committee and all. But yeah, the wealthy and, 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 and institutions are also susceptible to a more sophisticated kind, perhaps, of fraud and it really does this is where it, it isn't just business I, I guess i'll maybe bring it around this way it isn't just business as usual or just i mean capitalism is always going to have that tendency and that uh people who try to exploit it in that way and but that's precisely why it needs to be guarded against and i think disciplined pretty strictly because 
because you want to have a free-flowing marketplace where we can all buy stuff online and people can solicit us and offer us deals and, mm-hmm. and you want to have a certain level of trust, that's what any society and any economy requires to function, you really want to come down hard on the frauds, both whether it's a, an elderly person getting cheated out of $25 a month or, or a big investor getting cheated out of several million dollars by Madoff. Right. And he did die in jail. So yeah. that is just... All right, Bill Crystal, thank you so much for joining me on this uh, fill-in for the great Charlie Sykes. Um, and uh, people can uh, can tune in to Beg to Differ, which will be dropped on Friday. And tomorrow, the Bulwark podcast will be back and do this all over again. <laughs>